Trigger warning, in this week's episode, we will be talking about suicide. In today's episode, I speak with Christina Lagdameo. She's a co-founder of True Self Yoga, and we met while the both of us were living on Kauai. You'll hear stories of how she transformed personal tragedies, including the suicide of her brother, of her husband's cousin, and more that you'll learn about in today's episode into ways to be of service to a greater community and to really use them as opportunities for healing for herself, for her family, and for her family of origin. I hope that you get so much out of today's interview and that it's an opportunity for you to see how strong you are, how when the darkest things happen in life, that there are still opportunities to find light. Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. I'm your host, Judy Tsui, and together we'll explore mental and emotional health for Asian Americans, especially breaking through any taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's make your story beautiful today. Welcome back to the Fuck Saving Face podcast, where we explore all things taboo when it comes to being Asian American, being raised in the unique environments that we were, and how to really redefine what it means to be Asian American today. So I'm really excited because I have a special guest here today, Christina, who we met on Kauai. And I don't actually even remember how we met on island, but we were both living there at the same time. I remember we did a beautiful hakule making ceremony. You were living like on the beach in Anahola. It was so wonderful. Um, but she's also the co-founder of True Self Yoga in Olympia, Washington. And the reason that I wanted to have her on today is because there's a unique story around, you know, mental and emotional health from your own family and your husband's family as well. And then just all of the journey that you've gone through, I think you were one of the first people who I met who really lived and breathed this spiritual beingness in a way that I hadn't really seen before. I mean, I'd experienced a lot of I mean, we lived on Kauai, so there are a lot of spiritual people on the island. But you and your husband, Bajra, had a really grounded sense of being, which I just really loved and really taking these, you know, kind of spiritual ideas and weaving them into your everyday life. And I think being raised Asian American, depending on what your perhaps religious beliefs were or whatever your faith is, it really requires a lot of like personal awakening and reckoning to kind of step into a different way of being that's not guided so much by left brain rational living and success metrics and things like that into, you know, who you are as a full expression of self. And I think that you and your husband have also devoted your lives to really taking potential personal tragedies or personal tragedies and then turning them into something beautiful for a greater community. So I wanted to just turn it over to you for you to share a bit about what it is that you do now, your cultural background, and just kind of any stories that you'd like to share to introduce yourself. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, as you said, my husband and I co-founded True Self Yoga. We just had our five-year anniversary mm. past weekend. So that's really exciting for us because we left Kauai with the intention to start this uh, yoga studio, and namely because we lost Vajra's dear cousin, I think who you met, Trevor, who was only 20 at the time to suicide. And he was in Olympia at the time. And we felt so disconnected and far away. And he had come to live with us on the farm in Kauai. And we were so close to him. And then he came back to Olympia and just, you know, mm-hmm. life happens. And uh, and that's what happened. And 
Uh, it was devastating for our family and just the gravity of it was double for me because I lost my brother to suicide mm. one years ago. And it just felt like this is, you know, <laughs> really bad. Like, how do you have these statistics that, you know, two people and are very close to two people, two young men who felt the need to, you know, that life was so challenging that they had to take their life. And um, because of that, that just, you know, propelled Vajra and I to say like, you know, gosh, we have so many techniques, skills that have been passed on to us from our teachers, these ancient wisdoms that are so healing and help to integrate, yes, all these disturbances of the mind that we all have. And we felt compelled that we have to do something more to share it so that more people see this as an outlet to consider alternatives to yeah. stay alive, you know, like, you know, all the regrets that we have, you know, we just just channel it into our practice now and what to what we want to provide to the community. So we created a scholarship called Quest for Truth because mm. Trevor was known, uh, he went into the library. He was only like a senior in high school. So like, you know, so bubbly. He was like voted the homecoming king, you know, like just so loving and, you know, people adored him. And he went into the library one time and the librarian said, can I help you? What are you looking for? He's like, I'm looking for the truth. I want a quest for the truth. <laughs> so she's like, okay, well, here's philosophy, <laughs> you know, and we just love that story. And so we call our uh, scholarship quest for truth program, the scholarship. So it's for young people and, and we've expanded it specifically for BIPOC as well, because Olympia is kind of sorely lacking mm -hmm. in that field. And just to, give people the opportunity because yoga is really yoga and meditation can be really inaccessible yoga especially yeah. really intimidating and expensive so they get free yoga free classes um, just to like commit to being a part of it and the beauty is we've already had it was actually one of Trevor's good friends came into the program and she went through our teacher training and now she's one of our teachers oh my gosh <laughs> yeah that's so. wonderful can already see the benefit in this generation, which we had no doubts about, but you know, there is fear that people wouldn't participate, but that's the main, that's our main mission right now is to help people discover their true mm. self mm. and um, to connect with it and to live vibrantly from that place. I think that the, I mean, I, when I found out about Trevor, I think that the thing that was shocking was I did meet him and I did feel that he was so ebullient, like he's so effervescent and filled with life and just genuinely this quest and love of people and humanity. So when I heard about that, it was really shocking to me that, you know, someone so full of vibrancy was suffering so much on the inside and that you wouldn't be able to necessarily see or discern it. And I think that that's the, 
cunning thing about depression or anxiety. There's a book that I loved that I was listening to when I was really suffering from my postpartum depression in Austin, and it's called Furiously Happy. And it's by this blogger named Jenny Lawson. And I've never heard about anybody write about depression. And she has a lot of other ailments that she grapples with, but really trying to like find the joy in life regardless, because basically what happened is she had just kept hearing like person after person committing suicide. And she's just like, I can't handle it anymore because she had been on the verge of that many times. And so she just decided like, I need to do something differently. I need to choose to be like furiously happy. But the way she talks about depression, giving words to something that can be so difficult to express to other people in your life when you really need help. I just remember one of the lines from her book saying, what a fucked up disease it is that it makes you want to murder yourself. Like what kind of mental illness is that, that, you know, like, um, so I think that that's why it was so, you know, I followed your journey and love for you to speak a bit about the spirituality of it as well. Cause I remember when we were on the beach that day and you were just kind of sharing how you and your husband met and the teachers that you followed, you know, I'd love for you to share a bit about how you came into this too. Sure. Pleasure. Yeah, well, I um, am from the East Coast, which is way different than the Pacific Northwest over here. Uh, my parents are were born in the Philippines, and they actually met in Washington, D.C. They're both professionals. I know oh. it's cute. There's just such a cute story. Like, in the, they just had their 50th wedding anniversary. Wow. I know. Amazing. So they are just like a love story of, you know, these two young, you know, they come from well-off families, obviously, that they could be in D.C. as professionals. My dad was going to college. And then, you know, so they married and had five kids in, and we settled in a suburb in Maryland, a very strong Catholic family, probably like one of, uh, let's see, we were definitely the only Filipino family at the time, but maybe one of five in the whole little city we were in of people of color and for sure in my school. So I went to a Catholic school. My whole family did for all my brothers and sister for eight years. My parents came and they were like in it to win it. You know, they have this image of this like dream, the American dream, and they were doing it. It was amazing. You know, both of them became professional and juggling five kids and raising very well, you know, distinguished kids. We went to church every Sunday, all of us taking up a pew. We look like the perfect family. So, and my parents are very proud. That's a very Filipino trait, like being spiritual, but very proud of our upbringing, our heritage, and that we've made it, you know, not in an arrogant way, I would say, but definitely wanting to show it, you know. So yeah, we were always had to dress well, you know, like had to get, you know, into the Mercedes Benz and drive, you know, like just that they made it. So when when my brother's suicide happened, he had gone to the Peace Corps in Honduras and he was our oldest brother. And he came back and we think there was some struggle there that we didn't really understand of just like returning from a developing country and like trying to renegotiate life in such a like commercialized fucked up <laughs> place. And I, we, he struggled and went through some like breakups and relationships. And, and then he just, 
had a bad breakup with his girlfriend and I think he was wanting, he proposed to her and she wasn't ready. And he left the note for me because I was living there at the time. He like left it under my pillow. And so we were both living with my parents at the time. I was working in DC at the time. Mm -hmm. And thank God I did not go to find him. I just thought he, you know, was just like escaping. I thought he just left. It felt like just like a goodbye letter. I woke up my dad and my brother and then my dad found him. He hanged himself in um, his room. And so, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so just, yeah, probably the hardest day mm-hmm. of our lives, you know, mm. when you have to find your brother. Yeah. And still so really tender, you know, mm-hmm. just that moment of seeing him. And um, seeing my dad, I think oh. that's the hardest. Yeah. To see your parents in so much pain. Because yeah. it's just not like natural order, you know. They're like, no, you, we came to America to make, to like, you know, pave the streets gold for you so that you can have this like perfect life. Mm. And how could this happen? You know, what did we do wrong? And so so much shame and guilt Mm. and I think that was and still is you know I still feel it in my dad's heart to deal with and so yeah it really just pummeled my my family and thank goodness we had our community who's Mm. so supportive and that was probably the one time that I was happy for the church <laughs> you know I was totally anti-catholic not totally but those all those spiritual traditions that you grow up with are so healing mm-hmm. in those times of grief yeah. and you're just asking for mercy you know yeah. and grace and there was a nun in our church who held like a Um, grievance counseling, which I thought was really, you know, kind of contemporary for the Catholic Church, right? And so it was so helpful that we were able to go through her grieving sessions as a family. And we did that. And that just turned my light, all of our lives around, Mm -hmm. you know. And so for me at the time, I was I had just finished grad school and I got a new job at the um, Office of Management and Budget for the White House in Mm. D.C. for the Clinton administration. So I was like on top of the world, Mm. you know, like just like my parents wanted living the dream. I mean, I went through a whole saga of not being the doctor that they wanted me to be. I mean, they must have like tattooed it on me somewhere that like, she's the doctor. (laughs) She's our doctor. Like Mm. we're going to have a doctor in the family, you know, so. I went through a whole struggle in college to rebel against that and say, no, I'm interested in public policy and welfare and social community activism, social justice. And they're like, what? (laughs) What the hell is that? And what is an activist? You know, like, no, it's Mm. not enough of a salary. So anyways, they finally were proud of me when when I landed in a White House job. Right. Uh, Yeah, finally. And so, you know, it took a long time for me to, to integrate all the grief and the loss. And I used my practice at the time, which was yoga, 
to, yeah, just try to work through a lot of that and not know, realizing how much I was holding. And so it wasn't until um, I stayed in that job for like seven years. Mm. I was like, I was in it. <laughs> I was following the dream, right? I'm like, I'm gonna, you know, yeah, we're, 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 I'm making my way to upper middle class. Like, you know, just, I never thought that, but it was like, yeah, I'm gonna get married. I'm gonna have, you know, and, and it's DC. So it's all about like what your title is. Here's my card. And it was just, uh, I had met another like, policy wonky guy and you know we were engaged and and so it was like yes I'm on my way to like the family the kids like the perfect house in the suburbs wherever we were going to be in DC <laughs> and then two months before we were to be married uh he committed this horrendous crime um he was like the executive director of an organization and he uh he like put a video camera in the bathroom and um, it was a smaller organization, but it was like the, you know, the, the public bathroom <laughs> and he was caught. And this was two months before our wedding. It went on the news. I mean, it was awful. So like, once again, like the shame, the guilt, like just, I felt like an idiot. Cause it's like, how did I not know? Yeah. You know, here's my, I was about to marry him. Yeah. And and there was so much like to deal with there. And, and so I kind of, I stood by him and that was really hard for my family too. They were like, drop his ass. <laughs> you know, like, no, you get out of there. But to me, it was like, well, he obviously has like a disease, you know, and if it was cancer, you wouldn't tell me yeah. to leave him, you know, but because it's sexually, you know, associated I'm like he's not a pedophile you know like there's he's and you know like learning as he went through therapy like he had his own sexual abuse mm -hmm. and it just played out in this way over life and so I had I defended him in court you know I visited him in jail much to the chagrin of my family and then I realized yeah this isn't right for me yeah this isn't mm -hmm. you know he's he has a lot of work he has to do mm -hmm. and so do I mm -hmm. and I could see the codependency happening of like me setting up his appointments for therapy you know mm -hmm. just no like mm -hmm. you got to do this on your own mm -hmm. you have to be accountable to what mm -hmm. you're doing I have to deal with my shit because mm -hmm. I've got a lot of shit here too mm -hmm. and that's when I decided to go off on this pilgrimage and I was like I'm going to India <laughs> like screw all this I need to get out of here. So as I decided to go to India, uh, my friend was living in Mysore and she was telling me she was volunteering for a sex trafficking organization mm -hmm. that rescues and rehabilitates survivors. And then she was doing Ashtanga, which is my practice in Mysore, India. And so on my way there, I was like, well, I'm going to stop at this yoga journal conference in Colorado. In oh, yes, yoga journal. <laughs> Back in the day, when they could do those. Was it Estes Park or where did they used it to do it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and my friend actually worked for them and so it was fun you know I was like woohoo you know I just felt free and like you know yoga oh my gosh you like just you kind of feel like it's like the the hippies of our time <laughs> now right so you just this freedom and like delving into the philosophy and not coincidentally, my very first day, very first class, I meet Vajra, my now husband. And he was apparently, I actually didn't notice him. He tells me the story how he was like, I was off to my Mysore practice in the morning and he gave me water and I was like, oh, thanks. And I was like, I have to be Richard Freeman. He's like, you know, like the Mysore guru who I wanted to see and get to like class right away. And, um, but then he was in the next class, uh, it was on the yoga sutras with um, Nikki Duane and Eddie Stern. And I remember the first question they said, and I like philosophy was totally new to me. I was just, I was all about the practice, just the asanas. And I had no idea about the philosophies yet because it just wasn't on my, it hadn't been introduced to me yet. And Nikki asked, does anyone know what Patanjali means? And you hear this booming voice in the back of the room, falling into the hands of grace. And I'm like, what? Who is that? <laughs> and it was Vajra. And I'm like, hey. <laughs> so uh, and then we talked afterwards and had lunch and and then we ended up just like hanging out the whole week. And then I went to India, he was off to Hawaii and we just stayed in touch over email. And it wasn't until like three years later that we end up, ended up meeting in Seattle and then we got together. Aww. And now that's, that's our story. So, but that was, you know, I was like, you know, I was so excited to meet him because here's a man who is, doing this spiritual work that I was like, what, you started this when you were 18? <laughs> you know, like it just, I like, I was, were you, you weren't thinking about college? He's like, no, I went to Naropa. I'm like, what's Naropa? It's like a Buddhist college. I'm like, what? <laughs> college, you know, like me in my, you know, like such like limited perspective of the world and what was like success. And like, all I knew were like the Ivy Leagues, you know? <laughs> So cliche almost and and I was I was just very intrigued by all of our conversations and everything and and then that just put me on my journey to India and mm. yeah so that's that <laughs> what did your um, parents think about it when you met him well they didn't know about him, Vajra at the mm -hmm. time yeah mm -hmm. because I was like well I'm going to India so it was just like you know it was just a friend I had mm -hmm. met so mm -hmm. but when <laughs> the, the funny story is when um I had returned from India after three years because I was running out of money I could have stayed there a really long time and I'm like oops I'm running out of money <laughs> Obama was just elected and I was like well if there's a time to be part of this then this is the time I want to go back and be a part of this history in the making and my friend Karen Ahuja uh, was just named the executive director of the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and uh, I was in India and she's like I need a deputy director I'm like I'm on it. I was like, awesome. And, but the hard thing is, you know, it's a political appointment. And so she was prepping me for the interview and uh, she's like, I'm like, I haven't really done any election work. I was in India 
I'm like, yeah, I sent in my absentee ballot, but you know, it's it's all about showing your yeah how much you're supporting the party, right? But luckily, I had all my experience, seven years of budget. And I was up against some some competitors, but the community rallied behind me and it was great. So when I came back, they signed me to Seattle for some work on the community colleges out here. And uh, and then I knew Vajra was here. And so we just reconnected. And from there, yeah, we I was like, every time Kieran was like, we have another Seattle gig. Who wants to go? I was like, oh, I'll take it. <laughs> every time it was Seattle she's like you're going to Seattle I mean are you okay I know really long I'm like I'm fine with it it's good so uh it worked really well that you know we were able to reestablish our relationship and it worked out great that we were just in this perfect time in our lives where we'd both done our spiritual journeys you know and felt like complete in our own way and not like we need someone else to complete each other right and he and my parent, when I finally was like, okay, well, what's the plan? You know, we, we basically decided we're going to be together. And he's like, I'll come to DC. I was like, okay. He's like, well, you finish off your appointment. Cause I said, I'd commit for two years. And then I was like, well, my parents are really conservative. So if you come, we have to say we're getting married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you have to tell them right away. Or they're mm-hmm. going to be like, where's he sleeping <laughs> on the couch? You know, like, <laughs> It's like, no, there had to be like a ring on my finger mm. for it to be okay mm. to sleep in the same room. Mm. <laughs> so mm. um, I'll never forget it. And Vajra could tell you his version that he was like traumatized by that. He had to like ask my dad for my hand in marriage, like the day we he met him. <laughs> and he was like, and he's, my dad's like, why don't we just get to know each other? And <laughs> hang out. <laughs> we're like, no, no, we're on a mission. That's what we're doing. So I think they were very, they were extremely hesitant because they're like, who's this guy? He just like, he's a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like mm-hmm. they were very suspicious, especially after what I'd just been through, mm-hmm. you know, with my breakup, but they were, you know, they were happy for me and everyone was supportive. Mm, that's wonderful. Yeah. Did they care that he was not of the same ethnicity? You know, at that point, I don't think so. <laughs> I think they just wanted to make sure I was still marriageable. <laughs> I was getting older here. The biological clock was ticking. They wanted grandkids. But my other brothers had already had kids. But but I'm the first girl, mm-hmm. you know, so and kind of like there's a there's a very big pride and joy around your first daughter unlike other traditions where it's like the dowry is like yeah I think in Filipino culture um, well especially with my dad we just have a very close relationship Mm -hmm. and so he's always been very proud of me and always you know he just wants the best for Mm -hmm. my mom's much more traditional and is like why aren't you why don't you have a ring (laughs) like that's what she cared about and I'm like I work with survivors of trafficking. How would it be if I show up with this huge ass diamond, mm. you know, in a village mm. and she's like, well, just take it off? I'm like, then what if I lose it? It's like <laughs> total, you know, liability. I don't want that on my finger. I was like, someone will cut my finger off for this diamond. You know, it's like so stupid. So 
again, the clash of cultures Mm -hmm. of like my parents very much like established in the ideas of like wealth and prosperity to show success, you know, and I was just giving all of that up. Mm -hmm. And so we constantly clashed on Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think they've come around (laughs) in their old age. (laughs) Okay, finally, we get it. <laughs> it's funny because before we jumped on this recording, you had shown me your tattoo and that Vajra has the other half of the tattoo of the Tibetan eyes and the in lieu of wedding rings. Yeah, that's what you have, which is beautiful. But I love that. And I think that it requires a lot of self-awareness and courage and bravery to be able to get to a point where you understand where your family of origin is coming from, but then also to continue to pursue what it is that's like right and authentic for you. Um, I'm curious, did they, when you were on your spiritual path, because they came from such a strong Catholic background, did they have challenges and issues with that as well? Well, I think I'd already laid the groundwork <laughs> early on with all my like, you know, because I used to go to the pro-life marches in Catholic school. That was mm. like field trip. <laughs> you know, you're like, let's do the pro-life march. I mean, it was just part of, you know, indoctrination Mm -hmm. and and I believed in it too you know genuinely and then when I got to high school I was like oh yeah you know just like the different perspectives and I didn't go to a Catholic high school because I went to this like special tech school and my parents were probably like but it was free so they were like okay (laughs) it was like a really good school so I started to question them Mm -hmm. then about the Catholic tradition I'm like if you're so you know if you are, you believe so much in me and that I can do anything and be a doctor, well, then why can't I be the priest up there, you know, and Mm. why am I limited? I couldn't even be an altar boy at the time, an altar server, you know, on at mass, you Mm. know, I'm like, do you see these discrepancies? And these were hard conversations because I would protest going to church and my mom would literally like pull me by the (gasps) ear, you're going, you know, just, uh, like such brutal <laughs> stuff. And you're like, damn. But we, so I think then they knew already that I wasn't happy with the Catholic Church and they have four other kids. <laughs> so they didn't really want to deal with that with me all the time. So when, and also after that horrible breakup, not even a breakup, but just like, yeah, just like this humiliating experience. Mm-hmm and heartbreaking experience, I think they were just like, do whatever you need to do to, 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 to heal. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you know what, they're, what, a beautiful thing about my parents, they're adventurers too. So they love to travel. And so they visited me when I was in India. I think there was a little hesitancy, but for the most part, they've always encouraged me to travel and they actually visited me wherever I go. That's awesome. So it's sweet. Yeah. There's that paradox with them, which is is always hard. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. I think that, yeah, there's been conversations that I've had with my parents too, where I challenge them on like, if you believe this thing, then it seems like this other thing that you believe don't really sync up. So how do you want to reconcile that? (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) to my parents, to to their, you know, credit, I feel like I've watched them and witnessed them grow a lot. And it could not have been easy to have four children who, you know, they raise in a different environment who, for the most part, are headstrong and like, pursued different things than maybe they anticipated or expected. So that was interesting. 
One of the other questions I think around like the mental and emotional health component, you had mentioned that you were, you know, a fairly close family before, and then the grief counseling, how did, I mean, because in my family, we, I guess now we talk more about like feelings and emotions, but it wasn't like without some hard fought battles (laughs) to like get there. But how did that transpire and unfold for you? Like, what is it like now? Because I think for a lot of people still, it's really hard to have genuine, authentic conversations about how you feel and what's going on, whether that's from the language barrier element of it to, you know, it's just easier because I know that if I actually tell you what I'm thinking or feeling, we're going to get into like an argument about it or whatever. So how did that unfold for you? Yeah, well, you know, tragedy (laughs) makes you open up Mm. and unfortunately, and it just, you can either break down or you can break open. Mm. And luckily my family broke open and we, you know, we had those hard conversations, you know, about, um, the things we didn't see and, you know, mostly to, I think it was important Um, my sister and I saw like to, to make my parents feel not guilty for Mm. what happened, Mm. you know, like you've raised us all so well, you know, like these circumstances, like we'll never know what was going on in his head, you know, in Rob's Mm. head and the causes and conditions that led up to this, Mm. you know, we could, and of course my other brother being very patriarchal that he is like, that, you know, damn girlfriend, you know, like pointing the finger at her. I'm like, no, you know, like it's something really deep that, you know, we just we will never understand how someone comes to that point in their lives. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a tragedy and we don't want it to happen again. So mm-hmm. what can we do as a family to support each other, to make sure we're all, you know, communicating our emotions. Mm-hmm. So it, it did lay the groundwork for us to have more open, more regular conversations, usually around some other like issue, you know, like an unplanned pregnancy with my, <laughs> my brothers, you know, <laughs> a few of them. <laughs> oh, okay. Like we support you. It's all good. And, you know, my parents are, well, my mom is very vocal, my dad um, has just such a tender heart and he's like me that like we just cry at like the flip of anything and so it's hard for him to um, show his emotions Mm. um, but it will just like come pouring out now Mm. you know Mm. and so we've gotten a lot better but I would say that there is a lot of forgetting that happens and we have to remind each other of that Mm. all the time that like we can't let Rob's death, suicide be in vain, you know, like it has to change us at a fundamental level in so many ways. And especially as a family, you know, like if we can't connect in real ways, then what does it matter, Mm -hmm. you know, in this life, who cares, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what is all this, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I think also things like there was the, um, out of darkness walk that we did together as a family. Um, well, at least my, my dad, my brother and my sister did it, you know, where you walk, it's like, it started in Virginia and you walk through the night and it's for suicide awareness oh, and, wow. and you end up 
I don't think they do this anymore, but you walk through the night and you end up in DC, like walking up during the sunrise. Wow. It's just this idea of like coming out of darkness. Like we don't need to like be ashamed about suicides in our family and we, we can help each other, you know, support each other. And so that was like a really emotional, um, but a very bonding experience for us Mm -hmm. to just like kind of process through that, like at the somatic level, like physically we were exhausted just like walking, but felt like the community, you know, the support of each other. So I think there were things like, like that, but then like, you know, just life happens (laughs) and you get caught back into your old patterns and habits. And unfortunately, I think my parents, there's you see this with a lot of survivors of suicide that they swing the other way. So like my brother, my old other brother who, who suffers with, you know, other issues and needs help there, there's like a codependency now, Mm. you know, where it's like, you know, like there for everything that he Mm. needs. Like, Mm. you know what, he has to fall down. Like you, you have to let him. And it's like, no, Mm. you know, like, can't let that happen again. Mm-hmm. They don't say that, but you can see it in their yeah. eyes. Yeah. And so I think that's now the pendulum has swung the other way. And that's really hard. Like mm-hmm. their love is so, I mean, how do you question, you know, in, unless they have that wherewithal to like go to therapy, which they will never, <laughs> you know? So you you can't bring that awareness to them that it's like, you know, you're you're being codependent right now. So that's the struggle now that Mm -hmm. it's like, how does love evolve Mm. when you have these tragedies in your life, you know, and that there is this like fierce protection that's Mm. real. Mm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, you and I are both parents now, so there's like a whole level of awareness too. And I can absolutely empathize with why as a parent, you know, you would do that if you had experience that tragedy and that loss. I think one of the other things that you mentioned that was so interesting is, you know, both you and I have done yoga, have taught yoga, that the yoga, the movement, the somatic work, the bodily movement can be an entry point into processing feelings that you may not yet have the words to do. So if possible, you know, finding that physicality, that movement, because sometimes we're not ready yet and we just don't have the words, but it needs to get out somehow. It needs to like flow through. And I think the other thing that you said too, is like, yeah, your parents will never go to therapy, just like my parents won't go. But I think that you know, my mom became Christian at one point when I was in college, I think, and now she's like very devoted to her religion, which I think is her way of finding that processing, that group support, that faith for the things that she needs because she won't go to therapy. And I'm happy that she has that, you know, so meeting people where they are with whatever resources that they have, I think is really amazing. And you had mentioned too earlier, like the BIPOC yoga, um, when I was working with a mindfulness app, one of my initiatives was to lead this diversity and wellness series. So we were interviewing all these different voices and talking about some of the challenges that we may not be aware of when it comes to mental and emotional health, because there is that block and that barrier, whether it's from a systemic financial perspective, or just the unapproachable nature to some of these things that if you are the only person of color walking into a room, it can be really intimidating. That's what my experience was here in San Diego, you know, teaching at different yoga studios, people making flippant comments that they, I know it was not intentional to be like racist or whatever, but they're coming at it with whatever knowledge and, you know, that they have at the moment. So if you, you know, 
want to explore some of these things, finding the right spaces and places that feel safe, because there are those communities, you just have to seek them out. Like someone once told me a long time ago, when I was working at the startup here, that how do you find the right answers? You ask the right questions, but you have to know how to ask the questions. Like you have to be and, and refine your questions, like, you know, continue. And so some of my frustrations sometimes is like, what if I don't even know which question I'm supposed to ask? <laughs> How am I going to find the answer? So I think, you know, letting things be the breadcrumbs to growing and learning, um, because as you open up your awareness, and ideally that's what these interviews and these this podcast is designed to do, is just to at least expand your consciousness and your awareness a little bit more, hearing someone else's story, and then realizing maybe there's something that they said or some, you know, um, life path that they took that could then illuminate, like, oh, I didn't even know that that was possible. You know, you and I mentioned before, before we got on that one of the interviews I'm doing is with sexual somatic work. So I had no idea people did pelvic floor massages. Like I did not know that. And, but it was because I was in a community of people who body work is like their thing. And when I mentioned like, after having a baby, this is what happened to my body. And they were like, you know what, maybe you should try a pelvic floor massage. I'm like, a what? <laughs> like, wait, people do what now? <laughs> so, um, you know, yeah. just, being at least having that accessibility and that openness to maybe try. One of the things I also wanted to touch upon was you would mention um, that you helped found the Asian American Studies at the um, program at the University of Maryland. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. When I was in at the University of Maryland in uh, my freshman year, I took, it was like an honors class and it was like, it was called the Asian American Experience. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, and and I never really thought of, I never heard the term Asian American yet, mm -hmm. you know, because it was all just, I was the only Filipino. But but when I went to high school, I was in a more diverse place for sure. So um, I just was enlightened by all this history. And I'm like, what? How come I never got this in school, you know? Yeah. And, and and it was enlightening. And then it was just enraging too, yeah. because it was like the first time I was learning about Japanese internment. I mean, yeah. seriously. Yeah. In college, and, same for me. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like, what? You yeah. know, like I had no idea about it you just, it wasn't part of our history lesson. Mm -hmm. It pissed me off. Mm -hmm. And so I just started to ask questions um, in the class, you know, just like, why is this the only class? Why is it an mm -hmm. honors class? You know, mm -hmm. why is it so specialized? Why isn't everyone learning this? Why didn't we go into this in high school, in grade school? And, and then that's where I just learned the history of ethnic studies. Mm -hmm. And there was another, um, my good friend in there, Wendy Wong, and we, we both kind of were just like pissed off and we used our energy together. And and we're like, well, this is fucked up. So let's change this, you know, like, and as we learned more, like they established programs in other schools, starting in Berkeley, of course, in California. And, and so we started an organization called WASP. It was mm -hmm. specifically counter hegemonic, not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, <laughs> working for an Asian American studies program. Mm. And we were basically known as like the yellow panthers on campus because we were at the time, like people just weren't as radical, mm -hmm. like, you know, because it was a very quiet time when, you know, people, we didn't have anything like the Vietnam War or now, you know, like Black right. Lives Matter. So we were, you know, mm -hmm. we started to do little protests or teach-ins and then we would 
chalk on the on the campus about like, did you know 120,000 people, Japanese Americans were interned, you know, and people were like, what? Mm-hmm. You know, and so we would just like put all this stuff everywhere. And we started a little movement on campus, but we were very methodical and we were smart about it too, being Asian. <laughs> <laughs> So we weren't stupid, like we're just not going to protest. Like we had our demands and we, you know, we did our research. We went out to Berkeley. We went to conferences that were going on about Asian American studies. We looked at what other schools did, you know, what didn't work. There was a hunger strike at Columbia and we're like, we're not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we just, we just built momentum over the years and um, you know, at one point there was a big rally and, and we were very much about building coalitions with the other organizations. Like, look, we have black studies. Isn't it messed up that we don't have Asian American studies or Latino studies? So, you know, we had a great coalition of people and there was just one, I'll never forget this one rally. We did a stereotypes rally where everyone came dressed up as a stereotype and we did this little like catwalk. And then, you know, someone just said like, you know, we should just, we should go right now and go tell the president because like, this is really messed up. So we just like marched down there and he was pretty much avoiding us. And we finally got a meeting with him and they gave us seed money to start a project to explore like $250,000. So we were able to the classes and then but there was of course you know that was to placate us to like shut up (laughs) like you're making too much noise and so we just continued for the four years that I was there my sister ended up going to Maryland when I was graduating I was like passing the baton (laughs) you gotta continue this work so she ended up working on it and I think it was when she was there she ended up becoming the student body president we ended up we've I was like one of the first to get the certificate so I think we have a minor there now Asian American Studies minor that's amazing so we started a program all with just like you know like the questions of like why and Mm -hmm. how are we going to get this how are we going to fix this Mm -hmm. and and it's so interesting now because just to you know have those moments in life when you feel really empowered and you feel really enraged and that you can use that in a constructive way to create change Mm. was so empowering you know Mm. and it was just seminal moments in my young adult life and the friendships that I made our lifetime you know Mm. they're still really good friends and just to see you know students graduating with you know it's just it's it's awesome to see yeah. the power of, you know, people power. Right? I love, yeah, everything that you're saying. I mean, I went to Berkeley, so I yeah. I went to the Asian, I was like, wait, how did I not learn anything about this right. before? But I think one of the things that you're talking about also is creating a legacy. And I think that when you come from immigrant parents, it's hard to move past what's like right now, like right here, right now, you know, like we were, we grew up with so much financial struggle that that was like the key thing that we were focusing on. It wasn't about like being able to have the freedom to do anything else. So, and then also, you know, you bringing in other coalitions, you know, the goal of a lot of these conversations isn't to just stay in the Asian American community, but to see like, okay, so let's see how we can work with other populations that also need a voice. And so that we can start to normalize, you know, whatever it is that we're no longer subjected to being 
second rate or less than or marginalized or whatnot. So I love that, you know, you did that. And I think it requires some sort of, again, like personal confidence. And, and I think when sometimes we look at other people who've done things like this, it's easy to compare and just be like, well, I don't know, but I don't think you went into it thinking like, I'm going to create this massive movement. You just went into it realizing I have some energy. I would like to see a change. What can I do? And those small moments all lead to something big and remembering that we all have that power within us to invoke that change. I often, um, I just was hanging out with a friend of mine and we were saying like, you know, we've always had this drive and this desire to do something big, but also simultaneously, maybe something big is us supporting someone else who has like also a big mission and a big power. And that that could be the big thing that we do, you know, where he's a parent as well. So part of it could just be, our purpose to create that change was to bring these people into the world who will also, you know, then create that ripple effect. And so I think we never know how our actions can positively impact, but, you know, from your story, you've taken a lot of injustice and personal tragedy and just transformed it. I mean, there's like a whole, you know, you're in Washington now because this was the place that you felt, you know, called to after Trevor to create a community and all of the people who've come to your studio, which is a beautiful studio, by the way. So if anybody wants to go online and check it out, it's, you've been doing some construction with it and, and it looks lovely. The salt wall, <laughs> that looks so lovely. So, you know, as we close this interview, I wanted to ask you, I've been asking everybody, in this premise of fuck saving face, like, is there something that you wish that people would just know about or just something that you'd like to illuminate or challenge so that, you know, we can move forward with greater awareness and not the tried and true, whatever stereotypes have existed? Yeah, good question. Well, I always come back to my practice now and there is a, an idea from Buddhism that it, says that, you know, the mind is radiant. Your mind, my mind is radiant. It's blissful, but it is shadowed by visiting forces. And because of these visiting forces, we suffer. Mm. And so it's just such a beautiful idea. You know, it's like, yeah, our mind is radiant. It's just, it's shining, you know, it's clear. Our, our, idea of our true nature is present but it's shadowed by visiting forces and the buddha didn't say because of that you're bad or you know like you messed up or it's fucked up but it's just that you suffer because of these visiting forces and the visiting forces are depression anxiety shame guilt you can name all this judgment comparison so many that it's just, it's part of being human. This is mm -hmm. the human condition. Mm -hmm. And to know that gives you power to not be defined by the visiting forces. Mm -hmm. And so I wish for anyone who is suffering from, you know, especially, you know, thinking they should end their lives, you know, so that they know this, mm. that it doesn't define you, mm. you know, and it doesn't have to be this way, you know, and there are ways to support this discovery of your true self. Mm. And we all have that calling within. Mm. 
and and it's listening to it and getting quiet so that we can hear it and responding to it and and that's really hard now when there are just so many competing distractions Mm -hmm. just this world of technology alone is it's a great benefit for us to connect that we haven't seen each other in so long and for you to share this with the world and it's a huge distraction that we no longer have these unplanned times of quiet Mm. you know and just being still and noticing and listening within but we're slaves to our devices now Mm. you know and and we're addicted and compulsive now to like to check and to know what's going on around us and that's a challenge you know and so I think that's the challenge of our time and how we can create more spaces and more opportunities for people to get quiet, to find times of stillness, but also to do it in community. Mm-hmm. Like it is important to go to the cave and it's important to, to have that time alone and to, to go to the forest and to be with nature and to have that solitude. And it's just as important to come back and to share that those experiences with other people and to to be in community so that you feel connected and that you belong to something greater than yourself right and that you're not alone when these visiting forces do arrive and that you have tools to say you know like you hear the knock of the door like oh here's the visiting force am i just going to like open the door and let them run the house <laughs> like yeah just take over or are you like okay come in let's mm-hmm. have tea and you kind of just hold space and then you know they will eventually go away and then they'll come again and you just do that again and then they go away and then you know, maybe the space between them visiting just increases. Mm -hmm. Maybe the time that they visit, it's like, oh, you're not pushing me away. So I don't need to appear as often, Mm. you know, or you have just other tools, you know, to address when they do visit. And I think that's what this life is about, Mm -hmm. to understand that so that we can tap in to our true nature mm. and yeah, fuck saving faith. Yeah. So I think that's really, that is part of it and to, to know like all the veils that you're wearing, the masks, the hats, the roles you play and just peeling them back all the time. Those who have, you know, who have constructed those for you, who put them on you, your experiences, like we have to know and understand all of that in this lifetime, ancestrally, you know, understand it so that we can just start peeling it back and say, Mm -hmm. oh, no, that's not who I am. And that's not who I am. And that, you know, and just keep peeling back till, till you find who you truly are. I love that. I think that so often we think our feelings are truth. And I always like to come back to this understanding that feelings are information. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was in therapy, my therapist had said, feelings are not linear. They don't make sense. Like they can pop up whenever you can have like residual feelings. But, you know, sometimes I also see feelings that you don't 
at least give space to express in that healthy kind of way where you understand that they're visitors and they're not permanent. As long as like, you know, you just create the space for them, they'll act like petulant children while they'll just like keep like stomping and getting louder until you finally pay attention. And so I like the idea of like, you know, visiting, I think something else that you said, and in this time of COVID, you know, whenever things continue to shift into a new normal. Ideally, we would have the opportunity to come together as community again, because I think that that's why, you know, doing yoga teacher trainings or something like that, where you have the opportunity to be very open and authentic in a shared space is a really remarkable, unique experience to have. It's rare and you feel very bonded to other people and you're reminded like, oh, we all have the shared humanity. We can all come together. There's no like guilt or shame around it. I was reading another book recently. I can't remember what the title was, but it was basically he has this exercise where he asks everybody to take post-it notes and write on the wall, you know, like your greatest shame, your greatest fear, whatever. And you put it on the wall anonymously and then, or like people just don't know who wrote it. But then when, when everybody goes and looks at it afterwards, it's all the same thing. Everybody's going through the same exact thing. Those post-it notes are just repetitive of like, you know, the same feelings that we think we are the only people who go through them. And I think that your understanding of having that visitor, another analogy that I had heard when I was um, in yoga teacher training program is that we're this like crystal prism and that we can, if you put it against something with color, it'll take on the color, but when you remove it from it, it'll just be clear again. And so that I think was a helpful visualization of remembering, like, depending on the people that you're around or the circumstances that are happening in your life or whatever it is, yes, you will have those things probably penetrate through you, filter through you, but then you also have the opportunity to stand out and step outside of it. And then just remember, like, I am a clear you know, vessel, like I'm a clear prism. And I think that that's like really helpful too. So hopefully, you know, these tips, (laughs) these bits, you know, are what I always used to like to say when I was teaching yoga too, is like, take what you need and what works for you and then just let go of the rest. And it will also probably change as you evolve and grow as a person. Sometimes something that works now is not going to work for you in the future, but just bit by bit, remembering that we're all, you know, grappling with this idea of like saving face, whether you're Asian American or not, I'm going to say everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Now, if people want to follow you and hopefully come to one of your classes, where can they find you? Yeah. Well, we have a website, trueself.yoga and social media is really hard for me. (laughs) (laughs) The paradox of this time and our practice. Mm-hmm. So I'm very thankful that Vajra takes the lead on mm-hmm. all of that. But I do think we have like a Facebook page. And yes. <laughs> it's important yeah. to stay connected. And and the beauty of this time is that we now have virtual options, mm. which we didn't, you know. And so we have a lot of people connecting with us all over mm-hmm. the country. Mm-hmm. So you can join our virtual classes and virtual offerings. And then hopefully visit us in person because I think that's the most powerful work when Mm -hmm. you can be in person. And like you said, being the prism and being the mirror for Mm -hmm. each other, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said, that we see ourselves in each other. That's the essence of the spiritual practice is to Mm -hmm. see the goodness in each other and know how we can bring out the best in each other. Mm -hmm. And when people forget their song that is their true self that you can sing it back to them and remind it it. so 
Hope you'll join us and I hope you'll visit us. Oh my God. I would love to. (laughs) I would love to get our kids together too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I always used to close class with a reminder that when I learned what that namaste meant, the divine within me honors and salutes the divine within you. I loved that reminder. So thank you so much for your time and your energy and for sharing so vulnerably and authentically. And I'm so excited for people to learn more about you. Thank you, Judy. Namaste. (laughs) Namaste. Thank you so much for taking time and energy to spend it with Christina and myself today. If there's someone in your life who you feel like could benefit from hearing this message, please do share it with them. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, then I invite you to follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Fuck Saving Face without the U.